Um, I guess what I'd, what I'd like to talk about this morning is just kind of a, my perspective, kind of an insider's perspective on this thing called Antioch and, and church planting generally and, and why you see what you see when you come here. Uh, you've gotten a glimpse this morning of a variety of different things that we do. Uh, we, we've got these folks going on missions trips to, to hang out with prostitutes in Nicaragua and Cambodia. And, and we've got, at the same time, uh, folks that are keen on learning and, and are teaching classes at a local college that was birthed out of Antioch. And, and, and I don't know, I'm sure you're here for a variety of different reasons, and, and maybe I'm going to try to just pull it all together for you and, and talk a little bit about why we do these various things. Um, I'm thinking in particular of a young couple that, that used to be with us when we, were, when we started out back at the cinemas. Um, they've moved on for economic reasons and such, but, but I remember that they were really passionate about Antioch's, uh, certain aspects of Antioch. They were passionate about the fact that we cared about the arts, you know, that we cared about good music and, and good art and, and graphic arts and such. And, and they were passionate about our, our concern for issues of justice and injustice uh, locally and around the world. But then when God dropped this college on our laps, they were kind of really adamantly opposed to our spending resources and time on, on higher education. And, and so um, I'm, I'm thinking about folks like that, and maybe you're here because you do like uh, whatever, the music at Antioch, but you're not so sure about you know, some of these missions trips. Or maybe, maybe it is the, the issues of justice and missions that, that draws you here, but you don't understand why anybody would waste a Tuesday night taking a logic course. Um, and, and so what I want to do is just talk about how we ended up at this place. Um, and the, the real beauty of planting a church is that it's an opportunity to, uh, to re-examine the way church is done. You know, as, as Protestants, we're, we're heirs of uh, a major course correction in church history that we call the Protestant Reformation, where, where followers of Christ in the 16th and 17th centuries uh, examined kind of church practice and belief of their day in light of Scripture and, and found that there was a need for revision, for, for a course correction, if you will. And even though we're products of that major course correction, just by virtue of the nature of humans and human institutions, there's, there's always the tendency to, to fall away from, from the straight and narrow and to, to adopt habits of practice and belief that, that maybe aren't uh, scriptural anymore. And, um, and, and when you plant a church, you have the opportunity to, to just really get intentional about it, examining uh, whether what you're used to doing as church is really scriptural, whether it's the full gospel and, and such. I think, uh, and I, I should pause and say that one of the classes that I proctor and teach at, uh, at the Kilns is, well, two of the classes are actually church history classes. So, so just a real brief church history lesson of the, the last hundred years here. Um, there's been a falling away from the truth uh, in, in two different directions. And the most obvious is what we call liberal theology, and that is that uh, towards the end of the 18th century, in, in a, what was becoming a modern world in which science was making great advances, um, there were a number of folks who considered themselves Protestant Christians 
who came to believe that, that science had somehow done away with the need for God or disproved the existence of God and of, of the sorts of miracles recorded in Scripture. Uh, and, and so they came to disbelieve in all the supernatural aspects of, of the Word of God, including the divinity of Christ or even the resurrection, uh, you know, pretty much the essential core truths of Christianity. Now, for, for fairly odd reasons, they continued to consider themselves Christians, mainly because they saw in Jesus of Nazareth the best exemplar of what it meant to live a good life. And they, and they grabbed on to his ethical and moral teachings and said, that's what's going to hold us together, and we're going to continue to do, we're going to continue to care about issues of justice like he did, and, and we'll continue to call ourselves followers of Christ in that regard, even though we, we no longer believe that he was the Son of God or that he rose from the dead. Okay? Liberal theology. Now, whole other branches of Protestantism uh, rejected that conclusion and, and continued to believe in those core truths of Christianity. Uh, but, but there was kind of a swing, and, and this is real generalization and not true of all evangelicals, if you will, but there was kind of a swing in the other direction. And, and in order to distance ourselves from those unbelievers who do these issues of social justice and care about those things that, that it seems God cared about, uh, we're going to avoid that sort of thing. We're going we're to camp on salvation by grace alone, and we're not going to do those works that, that Christ commanded his followers to do. By the same token, evangelicals have tended to fall away from their, the, the historical Christian position of being at the forefront of academics, of founding universities, and, and of, of being at the forefront of political and social discussion. And at the, you know, it was Christians who founded modern science. And, and yet, in, in a reaction against liberal theology, the believing part of the Protestant church has swung away from those sorts of things. Um, basically abdicated their role at the center of politics and academia and, and, and to a large extent become anti-intellectual, okay? So these are kind of the two sides that, that we can fall away from the truth. And so at Antioch, as we, we began to plan a church, we wanted to, to come firmly down the middle, what, what Ken likes to refer to as the radical middle, and be those who would be followers of Christ in the historic Christian tradition at the forefront of issues of justice and injustice, at the forefront of, of academia, and not just, not just learning Bible, but applying a Christian worldview to every aspect of life, to politics and to science and to history and, and such. And so while we have birthed our own little Christian College, our goal, and it's, it's not unique to the Kilns College, but our goal is to, to hammer a Christian worldview in, into its students that they can apply to every aspect of human endeavor, including the arts and science and history. And so we teach courses like the History and Philosophy of Atheism, and I teach a course on science and the Bible, where, where we see how all of the all of the recent discoveries of modern science actually powerfully support the claims 
of, of the Bible, claims that the Bible is made for 3,500 years. So, um, so let's delve into a little bit of scripture just to, uh, to kind of ground what I want to talk about here this morning. I think I missed it. And this is one of my favorite passages that I think uh, gets at a piece of what we as the church are called to do, have been called to do throughout history. And this comes from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. And, and a much larger section of this passage is certainly worth reading, but, but let's focus on these two verses. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God came to do this thing called reconciling the world to himself. And now he's passed the baton off to the church to continue that ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we're here for a purpose. And that purpose is not simply to ensure that many people get to heaven. So again, kind of the, the gospel that the evangelical, that is the Bible-believing arm of, of Protestantism, has come to see as the gospel is really a fairly thin slice of the gospel. That is, it is important to declare to people everywhere, around the globe, in our own workplaces, that God loves the world, and that God has given the free gift of right relationship with him um, through the death of his son on the cross. But that's not the whole gospel. And, and, and what goes along with that generally is, and, and if you believe in that gift of, of salvation, then you will go to heaven in the next life. I don't want to minimize that. That's a huge and powerful and wonderful aspect of the gospel. But I want to challenge you this morning to, to think bigger than that. And that is that, that Jesus himself saw his mission as much more radical than just providing salvation in the next life. So let's look at a passage that, that talks about Jesus' own understanding of his um, mission. This comes from a passage in Luke early on in Jesus' adult ministry. And he's gone to the synagogue in his hometown, and they hand him the scroll. He, he asks for the scroll of Isaiah, and he comes to a particular passage in Isaiah where there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah King. And the passage that he reads, or, or a portion of the passage that he reads out of Isaiah, says this, Jesus reading to, to Jews in the synagogue in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he, he kind of rolls up the scroll and hands it back to them and, and sits down, and, and all eyes in the synagogue are upon him. And then, as recorded in what we call verse 21, Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay? So he sees himself as the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies of a coming kingdom. He sees himself as the promised Messiah King who would do 
these things. Set, it, set free the captives, heal the blind, and such. And I want to challenge you as you, as you read your Bible uh, to, to see the message of the Old Testament prophecies, the message of Christ himself, as more than just heaven waits for those who believe in him. Because what Jesus talked about was the kingdom of God on earth. Now, we have tended in the modern American church to, to spiritualize the kingdom of God. But Jesus, when he talked over and over again, when he gave parables about the kingdom, when, when he talked what the kingdom is like, he was thinking of a kingdom on earth that he was bringing to pass. And of course, there's, there's a now and a not yet aspect of this kingdom. You know, we understand that while, while Christ came to initiate the kingdom on earth and left us as ambassadors of the king while we're here on earth, that we expect that he's coming again and that the, the true fulfillment of the kingdom, the, the, the fulfillment of the victory that he won on the cross is, is still yet future. But in the meantime, we are stewards and ambassadors of his kingdom here on earth. And, and we need to get away from this idea that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is in heaven and awaiting us. Okay? When, when Jesus in Matthew 6 taught his disciples how to pray, you know, what we call the Lord's Prayer, but which should really be called the Disciples' Prayer, Think about it. The, the disciples' prayer begins with an, an acknowledgement of God as holy and holy other. And then the second line of that prayer is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom in heaven. It is in heaven. It, it's always been in heaven, and there's no need to pray for that aspect of it. The whole point of Christ's coming was that that kingdom of, of heaven is now to be initiated on earth. The kingdom, thy kingdom come on earth as it is and always has been in heaven. To be sure, there'll be a time when we as followers of Christ will find ourselves in heaven. But what Jesus spent most of his time talking about, what Paul and the other New Testament writers were talking about, was the kingdom here on earth. And that's what we should be stewards of now. Uh, that, that first uh, scripture passage I read you, where we are given the ministry of reconciliation, the next line of that that I didn't show on the screen is, and so we are ambassadors. And, and the, the imagery here is ambassadors of a king who is in a foreign land. Um, one, of, one of the parables that Jesus uh, shared with his disciples in Matthew 25 is, is kind of known as the parable of the, of the talents. Remember, uh, a master gives to three servants, three stewards, a differing amount of talents and then goes away to a foreign land. That, that parable begins with, this is what it is like. And it's, a, it's in a series of parables, most of which begin, this is what the kingdom of God is like. So this is a kingdom parable and he says the master goes away having left stewards in charge of his kingdom. And, and if, if you recall, 
he comes, the master comes back or the king comes back and, and examines what the stewards have done with what he'd left them in charge of. And of course, one, two, of the, two of those stewards had done very well with what he'd given them, and, and the third, not so well. He buried his treasure and, and didn't make any interest on it and such. And so he, the, the king, when he comes to these first two, and, and the first one would be in verse 21 of um, Matthew 25, says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Okay, so, so there's an aspect of working and doing well that, that we are expected to be, to be following now. Understand that we're, we're not saying that you earn your way to heaven. That, that justification salvation, to use theological terms, that saved from the penalty of your sin and saved to heaven is one important, foundational, critical thing, and I don't want to in any way minimize that. And those who would be stewards of God's kingdom here on earth have to first be saved and, and have the penalty of their sin uh, done away with freely as a gift. But once that's happened, we don't just sit around waiting for that time when we're taken out of here and going to heaven. No, the clear biblical picture is that God has already begun the establishment of his kingdom here on earth and will come again to further establish that, okay? Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about some of the more modern eschatologies like post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, and I'm not going to tell you where I fall on any of that because the fact is that, that those are, that, that whole dispensational thinking is a rather recent phenomenon in Christian thinking that dates back only to the 1800s. So the, this idea that Christ came to establish his kingdom and is coming again to fulfill that establishment, that precedes and supersedes and, and transcends these other eschatologies that, that we modern Christians tend to fight over, okay? Um, even, even the idea of the rapture, which has been popularized in, in modern Christian books, the idea that we will be taken out of this earth, removed before the tribulation or during the tribulation or whatever, to go be in heaven... That's a misunderstanding of Paul's imagery in, in 1 Thessalonians. That is, that is, when we are taken up in the air to meet the king, the imagery that Paul has in mind there is a returning king, that the people of the city go out to meet the king on his return to usher him back into his kingdom, his, his hometown. And, and so... Even that idea that we're just sitting around here waiting for Christ to take us away and out of this creation is a misunderstanding of, of the biblical portrayal. Christ is all about establishing a kingdom on earth, and as long as he leaves us who are justified and saved from the penalty of our sins, as long as he leaves us here on earth, it's to do his kingdom work. That is... Christ came to, by word and deed, usher in his kingdom. And so, theologians, as we look at the fall of humanity, what, what got us to this broken world in which we now live, um, identify four aspects of humanity that are broken. And each of those four aspects is addressed in and through Christ, and now through those of us who are his ambassadors. Um, 
So the relationships that were broken at the fall and that Christ came to redeem are, first of all, between us and God himself. Because we are fallen sinful men, we have no place with a holy God. But Christ's death on the cross paved the way for restoration of that relationship. And, and as I think about the women, the prostitutes at the House of Hope, that's the first thing they need to know, is that God loves them and has made a way for them to be restored to relationship with him. But another aspect of our brokenness that's pretty evident in those women that, that we visited with a couple weeks ago is, is that the relationship of each one of us and ourself has been broken. Our, our understanding of ourselves as made in the image of God and as loved by him, our understanding of ourselves as people with hope and value and worth uh, to God and, and to humanity, that's been broken. And that's a, a really difficult hurdle for, for these ex-prostitutes to get over, is the idea that they are beautiful, in, in beautiful to God and beautiful just as creation, creations in the image of God. Okay? Their ideas of, of beauty and identity have been forced on them by a really cruel culture, if you will. And then the third broken relationship is between individuals and others. And, and obviously it doesn't take much reading in the newspaper to realize that there's brokenness in our world, just as we saw brokenness in Nicaragua in, in the relationships between people. And then fourthly, uh, there was a brokenness at the fall that continues to today between man and the rest of creation. And Christ came to redeem even that. It tells us in Romans 8 that the whole creation groans waiting for the identification of the sons of God who will be the, the stewards of, of creation, who will, who will read, be in the process of redeeming for, for God and through Christ the whole creation. One of the things I really, really like about our partnership in Nicaragua is that, that those missionaries get all of this. You know, there, there's been a tendency within evangelical Christianity in the last hundred years to say, if we're going to go to another part of the world, it's just to stand on the street corner and make sure that they hear that they can go to heaven because Christ died on the cross for their sins. Again, that's a hugely important message. But the, king, the gospel of the kingdom of God that, that Christ came to institute is much more robust than that. And so our, our missionary partners in Nicaragua understand that and they, they realize that there needs to be attention to each of these aspects of broken human relationships. And, and they're addressing that. The various ministries together are addressing each of these areas and we see transformation again, as an example within these ex-prostitutes, on each of these levels. Um, as Eric Lofsgaard, our, our Bend missionary partner down there, uh, designs many of the buildings, the Nehemiah Center building itself and, and the, um, the new schools that they're establishing, the Nicaraguans would say, okay, let's cut down those trees. Let's just, you know, raise the whole field and then start building. Um, but the missionaries there, you know, exemplified by Eric Lofsgaard, say, no, no, that's part of God's good creation. We're going to build around this tree here, and we're going to highlight this little patch of flowers over here. And, and, and we're going to, you know, part of what Christ came to do was redeem our relationship with creation, not just to provide a place 
in heaven once we, we leave this earth. And so I, I, want you, I want to challenge you to, well, two challenges really. First of all, as, as you do your own personal Bible study, begin to understand God, God's mission in Christ as, as more robust and, and as having to do with all aspects of human endeavor and existence, not just as a, a pie in the sky for later. Again, the fact that we have an eventual place in eternity with God in heaven, that's huge. That's great. But that's not the fully orbed, robust gospel. Okay? And I, I guess the other challenge I would say is if you are here because you like the thoughtful approach to, to preaching that Ken has, or, or you like the fact that we birthed the college where we're, we really care about truth and knowledge, or on the other hand, if, if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you really don't get why we do that stuff, but you're here because of, of the music or, or the graphic arts or the, the concern for issues of justice, uh, issues of injustice here and around the world, I want you to understand that, that we're come together to be a fully orbed institution of, of Christ's own vision for the redemption of the world. That is that is the kingdom message that we are called to be ambassadors and stewards within has to do with every aspect of human endeavor. And, and so even if it's not your thing to take a class or it's not your thing to go on a mission trip, you need to understand that it is God himself who has brought people of a variety of such interest together in one place who will do all of those things and, and usher in the kingdom in, in the way that he intended. Now, I don't want to make it sound like Antioch is unique in, in this respect. Um, I, I think Antioch is part of a movement of the Holy Spirit that's going on today in America. And it's, it's largely going on within church plants. And, and to some extent, it's church plants in the Northwest that are, that are spearheading some of this effort. But it, it really is just a course correction, just a re-examining of of where the last hundred years of, of fall off in one of two directions from, from the truth, the radical middle truth of the gospel um, and, and, a, and a desire to get back to defending that, that radical middle. Um, you know, when, when Christ came to earth, it was a radical change in human history. That is, if, if you think of the, the Greek and Roman civilizations going on and on without Christ have, having come, the transformation of the world that occurred because he came is, you know, a topic for, for books and books and, and whole lecture series. Most of what we consider modern civilization, all of the good of modern civilization, including science and democracy and institutions of learning, all of that came about because of Christ coming to earth. The, amen. Thank you. The resurrection, the, the, the substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ is not only the most significant event in church history, not only the most significant event, event in human history, but the most significant event in all of cosmic history. It's the reason for the creation of the universe. And the... the the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and his resurrection was planned from before the beginning of the universe. And when we do find ourselves in eternity, future, in heaven, 
it's going to be that event that we're looking back on and giving praise. As, as the book of Revelation says, we'll all be gathered saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. The, the death and resurrection of Christ is the most significant event in all of cosmic history. And that's where we stand, but we do it in a, in a kingdom-oriented way, not just in a get-me-out-of-here-I'm-ready-for-heaven sort of way. I want to share a passage from one of my favorite authors. This is a fictional passage, and, it, um, and, and I'll close with this, but um, it, it's a Christian author who understood this this kingdom way of looking at what Christ came to accomplish. Um, it's, it's from The Lord of the Rings, the third book, if you've if you re- ever read the books rather than just watch the movies. And, and there's the steward Denethor, who is, um, who, who is the steward of the main city of humans, Gondor. And there hasn't been a king in many generations, but the stewards are meant to, to save, save a kingdom for the eventual return of a king, which many people didn't believe was going to happen anymore. And so the wizard Gandalf is talking to Denethor as his city is besieged and it looks like evil is going to win and and the end of everything, the end of civilization as they know it is coming to pass. And and this this is what Gandalf says as as the last steward questions the fact of whether whether there even is a king anymore and whether he's going to come again which is kind of reminiscent of, of a passage in Peter where, in the, in the epistle of Peter, 1 Peter, where it says people will go on living as though the, the king is not returning. Gandalf says, unless the king should come again, echoing Denethor's words, well, my lord steward, it is your task to keep some kingdom still against that event which few now look to see. In that task, you shall have all the aid that you are pleased to ask for. But I will say this, the rule of no realm is mine, neither of Gondor nor any other, great or small. But all worthy things that are in peril as the world now stands, those are my care. And for my part, I shall not wholly fail of my task, though Gondor should perish, if anything passes through this night that can still grow fair or bear fruit and flower again in days to come. For I also am a steward. And I think in this passage, Tolkien understood that we are not just sitting here waiting for a a new existence in heaven, but that we are called to be ambassadors and stewards of God's kingdom for now, waiting for his triumphant return in the future. And so I just want to challenge you to to see the the New Testament passages, especially in, in those eyes, Uh, more as you do your Bible reading. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, your sending the King to earth. We thank you for all of the transformation that he brought to pass. We thank you especially for making it possible for us to have relationship with you, a holy God, even though we are sinners at every turn. We thank you that you've reserved for us a place in heaven for when we pass from this life. But we also thank you that that the transformation that Christ came to bring is, is one that encompasses every aspect of human life. We thank you for church history in which we see that that while there were stumbles and faults along the way and, and, and where the church has been involved in in things that have not been according to your will, that nonetheless it's been the church the followers of Christ that have, that have brought 
change and transformation to, to this world history, to civilization. And we thank you that you've called us here at Antioch at this time and place to uh, be ambassador, ambassadors and stewards of your kingdom on earth at this time, here in Central Oregon as well as uh, around the, the globe. We pray that you would continue to infuse us with uh, the sense that we are liege lords and liege ladies of a triumphant king, that we would continue to look uh, anxiously for your return, but in the meantime that we would be found as good stewards. We pray that you would, your Holy Spirit would guide us as we uh, seek to discover your will for each one of our lives and for our life as a, as a community of believers as you bring opportunities our way, whether it be the college or, or missions opportunities or, or just preaching the good news that, that Christ came to earth to live a perfect life, to die in our place, and to raise again from the dead. We just thank you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.